When you think of Prohibition, it conjures images of Chicago, Atlantic City, Brooklyn, and Cincinnati. Yep, we'll meet the boisterous bootlegger who quenched America's thirst far from the spotlight next. Hello, history lovers, and cheers. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. That's right. Go ahead and pour yourself a drink. You've earned it. In this episode, our time machine travels back to meet a pharmacist, attorney, and art lover who turned his talents to bootlegging and experienced a spectacular rise and fall in the Roaring Twenties. Wetting our whistle with this tale of booze and betrayal and oh so much money is Bob Batchelor. He's the author of The Bourbon King, The Life and Crimes of George Remus, Prohibition's Evil Genius. We previously caught up with Bob to chat about his book, Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. You can find that interview in the archives at historyauthor.com or our iHeartRadio channel and iTunes. Bob Batchelor is a cultural historian who has written or edited more than two dozen books on popular culture and American literature. These include books about John Updike, The Great Gatsby, and Mad Men. Plus, giving special insight to the Bourbon King, he lives in the Queen City of Cincinnati, Ohio, and teaches at Miami University. You can find our guest at BobBachelor.com or toss him a follow at Cult Pop Culture. He's really active on Twitter, and it's always nice to have an author follow up with you on there, get to know them, and then find their new book in your mailbox one day. How lucky am I? Okay, now that we've arrived at our favorite speakeasy, let's give the secret knock and slip inside to clink glasses with the Bourbon King. I'm joined via Skype by Bob Batchelor, author of The Bourbon King, The Life and Crimes of George Remus, Prohibition's Evil Genius. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Bob. Thanks a lot, Dean. I really enjoy being here. You know as well as I do, I'm a fan and love the show, so appreciate the opportunity to talk about The Bourbon King. Well, so kind of you to say, and I have to say, when I saw your name pop up on the board, I said... It's nice to see Bob's name in my Skype call and also to see you on the cover of a book. And this is far removed from your last book that we talked about, Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. And I just said, I have to compliment you on being able to cast that wide net out there. Here you have a guy who's just as large in his field, I guess you might call it, if we want to call his criminal endeavor a field, but he's just as large at the time as Stan Lee was for Marvel. And yet... Completely different. You couldn't think of two more different fellows. The Bourbon King does read almost like a comic book. It reads like a novel. And that's something really fitting because here George Remus is 
a possible inspiration for Jay Gatsby in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. The guy really does seem like he could be somebody like Kingpin to talk about Marvel. I promise I won't make too many comic book references, but he seems like a fella who could be right out of one of those comics. His life has so many exciting moments. He could have been in many, many stories. And that's why I want to start right where your book does. And that's where you have that first scene. Choosing that is something that I can't imagine doing because the guy really does have a fascinating life. You choose this scene where it's going down a little, you tell the story, then you come back to that and show us how he got to that period where he has blood in his hands, literally. So how do you choose that? How do you take somebody with a life that's so sweeping, as is George Remus's, and tell it in a story like The Bourbon King where you keep us moving just as fast as if it was a comic book? I really thought about The Bourbon King almost cinematically as I was writing it. I really was thinking... How would this unfold on the screen? And I think it drove my editor, Keith Wallman, at Diversion Books a little crazy, but I don't like chronological history that much, which might sound crazy coming from a historian, huh. but I think most of life happens in flashbacks and thinking about what might happen in the future. People are often not in the present. And so... I think that the reader can handle a story that jumps around a little bit because so much of the culture is built around flashbacks. So I started The Bourbon King right after Remus gets to the police station and turns himself in. And this will be certainly a, a spoiler alert, but he's just killed his wife. Most people know that if they know of George Remus, so I'm not giving away too much. <laughs> but he's just killed his wife. And you think, well, once somebody kills their wife, what do they do next? And he murders her in broad daylight. So what happens next is it's a bit convoluted, but I start the minute he walks in and confesses. It's an interesting way to start a book about a character who is so larger than life. And that's what really got me interested. It's cool that you made the connection to Stan Lee because the last words of the subtitle of this book are Prohibition's Evil Genius. And in some ways, I see Remus as well as a, a Marvel supervillain. And so when I'm thinking about Remus, this is a character who had a really tremendous impact on early 20th century history. And he fit right into my wheelhouse, the things that I like to talk about. That's how I was able to make that leap that you discussed Remus is a big topic. Prohibition is historically significant. And I think there are tremendously interesting links to what was happening in the 1920s to what we may foresee happening in the 2020s. We're still dealing with a lot of the same issues. So in my mind, we look back, we tell this story as a rollicking tale, but also a cautionary tale. And that's definitely why I went cinematic and, and tried to begin this book in a way that would pull the reader right in from the beginning, because you're right, there's probably 10 or 12 places. In fact, at the beginning of each chapter, I'd start the same way, taking a scene from the chapter, the thematic chapter, and then going back and telling how we got to that scene, how Remus gets through the scene. So if you like that style of writing, you're going to dig the Bourbon King, because I employ it quite a bit. That's what gives me that impression that it's like a novel where you do start in the middle. 
That's one of the lessons they teach you in storytelling, right? Don't start with, okay, he's in a crib. It can become very boring. It's one thing if you're studying a president, let's say, or somebody like Stan Lee. Well, you do have to still tell people about the Avengers. That's what people want to hear. They want to hear about the X-Men. They want to hear about him at Marvel. And it's okay to jump back and give, as you said, his story of when he's coming up or how he meets his wife and all those great stories you told in Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. But let's face it, if I had to say to you, hey, who's this George Remus guy? And you wanted to tell me, you wouldn't start with, well, he's born a poor child in a small... <laughs> yeah. You would tell me, well, he was Prohibition's evil genius. And I would say, what? How did he get to be that guy? What's the origin story? And you know that because you're a reader and historian and a storyteller. And that's what you put here into the Bourbon King. It's not just, here's a timeline of his life. You tell us who he is. You show him big on that screen that you're speaking about, larger than life. He's with Batman mm-hmm. or whoever it might be. Sorry, I switched over to DC. He, he drops in as that supervillain. And then we say, who is that guy? How did he get to be Prohibition's evil genius, as your subtitle says on the book? So what is that origin story? He, the guy's a pharmacist. We never think of pharmacists, certainly, as an evil genius. But he applies those talents and that knowledge to filling all those empty glasses. And then he's a lawyer. He sees opportunity in that. He sees these guys skirting the law. So give us that flavor of his origin story. Yeah, Dean. I think even though I start out with this piece kind of in the middle of the story, perhaps, or in the back two-thirds of the story, I still go back and then talk about chronology. You can't really get totally away from it. And I actually really enjoy that because with Remus, what I found when people did previous studies of Remus is they kind of glossed over those pieces. They glossed over the beginning and his origin story and where he came from. Remus played fast and loose with a lot of facts. And I would use air quotes. If you could see me right now, I'd be air quoting (laughs) facts because a lot of the things that Remus said were untrue. He played loose with his birth date. He didn't talk about his family that much as compared to many celebrities today who do talk about their families a lot. You know a lot about their background. During Remus's time, he's a German immigrant and he feels some trepidation about that standing. So I go back early in the book and I talk about his early life. I go back to the pre-George time. I talk about his family and with all the research a person's able to do now in terms of genealogy and historical research and checking and double-checking databases, there's so much in the Bourbon King that's never been seen before. And George's early life is part of that. His dad was an alcoholic and they didn't really have much luck in the United States once they came over in the early 1880s. So by the time he's 13, George is working in a pharmacy for his uncle and he loves it because he loves being the center of attention. Pharmacies in the late 19th century, early 20th century, pharmacists are almost like small town doctors. They're doing a lot more than we consider what pharmacists do. They're actually making recommendations. They're dispensing medicine, particularly in immigrant communities where they were looked at as kind of the pillar of the community. And Remus even gets an optometry certificate so that he can be called Dr. Remus because he likes that influence. He likes to be the center of attention. So the pharmacy, a career which 
necessitated super long hours and really hard work fit George Remus's personality perfectly because he had to drop out of school to start this career as a pharmacist, first as a clerk, supporting his family because his father was a drunk. George steps in and he finds a career that is really perfect for him. So the origin story of Remus then later studying to become a, a certified optometrist, then completely switching careers to become a lawyer, is really integral to who he is. And what readers might really find interesting, and your listeners, is that Remus was also a tremendous athlete. If you see a picture of him, he's a short guy for that age even. He's about 5'5". Five, five. He's stocky, super powerful. People would say he's built like a bull. But he was an amazing swimmer, and he would participate in these 10-mile sprint marathons, they would call them, in swimming. What they ended up being oftentimes was endurance tests. And Remus was competing against guys much younger than him, and he competed with the best of them. He even competed in the national championship in the early 20s. So there's some really fascinating things about this guy. When you start to meld all these little pieces of the origin story, you can see why somebody who's this ambitious, wants people's respect and love this much, might turn to something criminal and really become the criminal mastermind that he turns out to be once prohibition kicks in. Back then, a pillar of the community would be the pharmacist. And I was thinking of it and I said, you know, he's absolutely right. I'm thinking of how you'd have the soda fountain in there and you'd have people meeting there. And maybe it was the only store that sold certain things in your little town. And you trusted that man. And also you gathered there. It might be the only one you had in town, only place other than the saloon where you could go and just talk about things and bend somebody's ear. So I could see this young man really developing his personality, as you say, throughout the Bourbon King. You say, well, he wanted to be the center of attention, so where would you go? You're too young as a kid to go to a saloon, so you, you can't run for office, so you go to the pharmacy, and then you get a measure of respect, especially as somebody who's small in stature. I had a friend, and his sister was a pharmacist, so was he. His dad owned a pharmacy, and she was tiny, and by being a pharmacist, she said, I could stand behind the counter and I'm and I finally can look eye to eye to people and they give me the respect that they won't just on the street because she was very tiny. That makes me think of Remus here because he develops that ability then to go from a pharmacist to being a lawyer. They call him weeping, pleading Remus, you write in the Bourbon King, but never to his face. So that tells you so much about him right there. There's this duality to his personality. They are they are looking at him, they're kind of laughing, but they wouldn't laugh at him to his face. And also, I'm sure as lawyers, they're a little envious of his abilities. How did his talents for these dramatic actions in court, such as the one point where he swallows poison, and I'll let listeners read The Bourbon King to find out why a man would do such a thing as that and how he survives. But how did that sit with his fellow attorneys and later carry over into exploiting a Volstead act that he mocks for being as fragile as tissue paper? Yeah, it's an interesting transition for Remus. And so many strains of his personality come together, as you mentioned. And what I think I really want readers to understand is this is an incredibly complex person living in an incredibly complex time because he is a German immigrant and this is during and after World War I where German 
Americans are facing a lot of discrimination. And so there are a lot of factors at play for Remus, both as a German immigrant, as a person. He wants a bigger life. And this is a guy who constantly is striving. He wants a bigger piece of the pie. And he's smart enough and opportunistic enough to figure out ways to make money because he knows money equals power. He went to a knockoff law school. I mean, really a second tier law school. It develops into a a better school, but it's almost like a glorified correspondence class. But it gets him the ability to pass the bar. And that's important. So he passes the bar. He immediately makes some really important friends. One of those friends is Clarence Darrow. And he takes on the same characteristics as Darrow. He's very much against public execution. He's against the death sentence. And Remus becomes highly focused on winning cases, and particularly if his client were facing the death penalty. So you have this on two sides. One, a person who is willing to do just about everything, like you mentioned, willing to swallow poison to get his client off. But he's also a German immigrant and goes to a second tier school. And so he's mocked by the blue blood society that runs Chicago and suburban Chicago legal profession. So on one hand, you have Remus, who is the Napoleon of the bar. And that's what people who are supporters of him call him, the Napoleon of the bar. Some of the people that he went up against and that he had beaten in cases, people who had gone to Yale or University of Chicago or or Harvard, they called him weeping, pleading Remus as a way to diminish the talents that he brought into the courtroom. And it was a mix of kind of this aggressive masculinity on one hand, this ability to be emotional. So he really did actually manifest both sides of this personality. At times he was the Napoleon of the bar, other times he was weeping, pleading Remus. But it's essential to understanding who he is because the money that he later makes transitions him and gives him the foundation that he needs to then become the Bourbon King when he moves to Cincinnati. You mentioned the Blue Blood families and those guys on the bar that went to the big schools. That leads me perfectly into my next question, and that's about the royal family of Cincinnati, the Taft family, that gave us the lone man to serve as both president and chief justice of the Supreme Court. That's William Howard, Big Bill Taft. Here's Cincinnati, a name already I didn't associate with bootlegging until I started devouring the Bourbon King. And that's not just a really good verb. It's true. That's how I read your book. I just just couldn't get enough of it. I had it 24-7. I usually don't read books in my off hours. And here I was reading this constantly from the moment I picked it up. And when I found out the Tafts were going to be in it, I said, hey, I I didn't put that together either. And here's this son of German immigrants, a little guy, an upstart with money that of all things comes from an illegal enterprise. And he demands to be part of high society in the Taft's backyard, if not their front parlor. He wants to be part of the action and he's going to be equal to them. So give listeners a little taste of that. How does Remus lock horns with the Taft family? Yeah, this is really a fascinating aspect of the book. And I'm so happy that I live in Cincinnati because 
I posted on Facebook the other day some pictures of, you know, I get to walk these streets and basically walk the same places that William Howard Taft or Charlie Taft or Remus himself walked. And I can see these places that were so prevalent in the book. So Cincinnati plays definitely a starring role in the book. So it's a star of the Bourbon King, and, and I'm, I'm happy about that. The Taft family was so powerful in Cincinnati and had been really one of the founding families. And they were interspersed with other primary families like the Sintons and the Longworths in Cincinnati. They're really one of the power brokers. So when Remus comes to Cincinnati, he sets up here because he realizes that about 80% of the bourbon made in the United States is somewhere within a 300-mile radius of Cincinnati. So he can drive or get access to as far away as Louisville, over to Maysville, through Indiana, all from Cincinnati as a headquarters. And he comes into Cincinnati in a huge splash. He initially sets up his headquarters at the Sinton Hotel, which is owned by the family of Anna Sinton, who is married to William Howard Taft's half-brother. And so right from the very start, Remus is tied together with the Tafts. And if there were one place in the book that I wish that more records survived, it would be to ferret out even deeper the relationship between Remus and the Tafts, because it was all under the board until George kills Imogene and Charlie Taft gets involved and William Howard Taft gets involved. But prior to that, they were intimately linked. And I suspect that Remus was the Taft's source for booze during the early years of Prohibition. And I think that's probably almost without question at this point. They were using the same law teams they were even using the same real estate brokers. And Cincinnati is about maybe the eighth or 10th largest city in the country at the time. So if you have the top law um, office in the city working for the Tafts and Remus comes and gets involved, then they're definitely going to be interspersed. And so Remus settles in Cincinnati and he does it in a big way by buying a mansion and refurbishing it starting to throw these amazing parties. He's really doing things that make Cincinnati and Remus and the Tafts all interspersed and part of the main line of the story. If we fast forward, it's really interesting. He basically ruins Charlie Taft's career. And people had assumed that Charlie Taft would someday follow his father to the presidency. But the defeat by Remus knocks him off that pedestal, and he really is never able to regain his footing. So the Taft part of the story is, is really uh, an incredible part of the overall Remus story. Something else to think of, and even if you hadn't written the Stan Lee book, I would still say this, kind of like a crossover comic. That's <laughs> how I always think of these. When you see yeah. families like the Tafts and then the guy like Remus, and you mentioned the Longworths, and that's Alice Roosevelt's family that she marries into, Nick Longworth, the Speaker of the House. So 
This is a time when the eyes are really on Cincinnati, the eyes of the nation. There's a lot of powerful people there. As you say there, if you wanted booze in Cincinnati, you were going to get it from George Remus. It seems like the Taps wouldn't have had anywhere else to get it. But I'm sure many of the things we've picked up are from movies and the like, and we don't really know how you go about getting your booze. You picture all these things. You picture something like the 21 Club in New York City where they had the bottles all on a wall and then they would fall down and then go into the sewer if if they were raided so they wouldn't know that they had any booze. There was one little detail here that I picked up in the Bourbon King that I want to use to explain a little bit of the logistics of how you'd run this operation. And that's that you say Packards were the most popular car for rum runners. So I wanted to ask you to turn state's evidence against George Remus and use Packards as an example, as a jumping off point, to explain the logistics for us briefly. How does a guy who is in Cincinnati go about quenching the thirst of everybody, this guy they call the underworld boss of Death Valley. I mean, it doesn't sound like any of these things add up to a national empire that's getting into literally every glass and avoiding all of these G-men and the combined might of the federal government to enforce the Volstead Act. So why Packards and how do they play a role in this sprawling empire? One of the more interesting aspects of the Bourbon King is examining Remus's distribution system. And he was smart enough to realize that he needed a central location to run his operations. And it needed to be far enough outside of Cincinnati that prohibition agents and police officers and others wouldn't try to find him or wouldn't find him easily. So he buys a farmstead that was later called Death Valley, and he runs his operations, his main distribution operations from Death Valley. And it's maybe 10 or 12 miles west of the city, north, northwest of the city. And it's really a hidden location. And he puts word out through the rum runners that Death Valley is the place that they want to come to get pristine alcohol. Now, the rum runners are going to cut this alcohol multiple times because they can make so much money off of it. You take you know, a gallon of whiskey and you add two-thirds water and sell it for jacked-up prices. There's a lot of money to be made. The Packards play a role because the rum runners can soup up these engines and get these things going so fast on the back roads, these guys become like almost early versions of NASCAR racers. They're able to run these cars on the back roads through states like Indiana and Oklahoma, and the police can't catch them. It takes them a long time to kind of have the firepower in terms of engines and capacity to catch up to the rum runners. But Remus needed a central location. He finds it on this farm, It's labeled Death Valley for a very interesting reason, because one of the big things is that rum runners draw pirates. And so there were actual rum runners who acted as if they were pirates of the high seas and tried to hijack either Remus's truck coming into Death Valley or the different rum runners leaving Death Valley. So essentially what Remus does is he buys an army. He has men with semi-automatic weaponry. He has men with machine guns, everything that he can find in that day. And he even has hidden turrets within Death Valley so that if they're attacked, 
they can respond in force and eventually people will know better. Don't come, don't come this way. Don't try to hijack Remus's booze. What George then does is builds smaller depots all around kind of the Cincinnati, Kentucky region and uses that to then branch out. He makes connections in Chicago. He makes connections in New York. He makes connections in Washington and Philadelphia. And this is how the Bourbon Empire really starts to solidify and cement, you know, nationally, because he's able to establish this kind of headquarters, this foundational place in Death Valley that people are coming to him. He's bringing large, large quantities of booze into Death Valley. It's a well-oiled operation that he sometimes liked to call the circle. And the circle for Remus was basically controlling every aspect of the manufacturing process from the creation of the bourbon till it gets to the final hungry throat of the uh, consumer on the street or in a speakeasy. You're bellied up to the bar to enjoy my conversation with Bob Batchelor. We're talking about his book, The Bourbon King, The Life and Crimes of George Remus, Prohibition's Evil Genius. You can find our guest online at bobbatchelor.com or on Twitter at cultpopculture. David Petrusha, author of Rothstein, The Lifetimes and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series, says of the Bourbon King, quote, The fantastic story of George Remus makes the rest of the Roaring Twenties look like the Boring Twenties in comparison. And by the way, if you enjoy David's books such as Rothstein and 1920, The Year of Six Presidents, check out my interview with him about his latest title, TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. Bob, I asked David Petrusha what question he'd put to you about the Bourbon King, knowing so much about Rothstein. I figured let's tap him as this great historian to inform this. What would you ask if you could ask somebody who just wrote a book on George Remus? And he offered this. He said, Remus seems like such a unique figure in the gangland annals. But if you had to think of somebody to compare him to, who might that be and why? That's a great question. And of course, David's going to ask something that intelligent. I was so happy to get that endorsement for the Bourbon King from him because I really do think he is one of America's most beloved and favorite historians. He's so a national treasure. Even to be mentioned in the same breath as David is, is really an honor. And his books, both on Rothstein and Kennesaw Mountain Landis, were really guides for me and models as I put together the Bourbon King. Um, if you're going to walk in somebody's footsteps, David Petrucia is the kind of guy that you definitely want to you want to emulate. So I appreciate you asking him that question, and, and he's really a great man. Remus, on the other hand, was not a great man. And one of the things that I would want my readers and I would want your listeners to to understand right away is that this is not a guy that you would want to have a beer with. This isn't the George Bush, do you want to have a beer with the president kind of measure? Remus was a thug and he was a criminal. Now, he could be the most interesting guy on the planet. He could be very charming. He always wanted people's respect and love. 
but this is not the kind of guy you would want to hang out with. I was talking with a friend the other day and I said, if I saw George Remus knowing what I know about him across the room, if I were transported in a time machine, I would get the hell out of the room because (laughs) Remus is a scary character and he's surrounded by men who shot first and asked questions later. So when I think about that question from David, my answer might be a little crazy off the bat, but I think Remus had very much qualities of Lyndon B. Johnson and some qualities of Joseph Stalin. I think if you could somehow combine those two characters, you'd have someone historical that could compare to Remus because Remus could be that person who could be a great leader and could be admirable and give a poor kid a $5 bill at a time when $5 was a day's income for a worker. But he's also a guy who would lose his temper. He ruthlessly beat people with brass knuckles. He carried a gold-tipped weighted cane. And in the 1920s, George Remus wasn't limping around. You only carried a gold-tipped weighted cane for one reason, and that was self-defense. So I would say when you read about LBJ, there are some characteristics. Now, Remus had people murdered, and he had people attacked. So I, you know, I wouldn't pin that on LBJ. It's been a long time since I've read my Robert Caro, but I know LBJ wasn't a murderer. But certainly Stalin had that. So maybe I'm not stretching it too far, but... If you're going to go outside the gangland comparison, I would say a little LBJ in his maybe his worst moments and maybe a little bit of Stalin wasn't mass murder. But we have to remember about Remus in the end, the defining moment of his life is the day that he shoots Imogene murders in cold blood. The coroners called it a gut wound because he put that gun right up against her stomach and pulled the trigger and This is an insane act by a vengeful, vicious person. And he wants her to suffer. And that love triangle, her and a G-man and George Remus, who's in jail for some of that, another riveting story that's one of many in The Bourbon King. How could the guy do it? And then you remember, oh, right, he's been doing it to nameless, faceless people as far as the narrative goes. I mean, they, they were real in their own lives. But to us, reading, they're nameless. You mentioned LBJ, and I interviewed Betty Boyd Caroli about her book, Lady Bird and Lyndon, The Hidden Story of a Marriage That Made a President. And as you're saying that, it is something that we don't associate with any president, really, where we say, well, the guy's murdering people. Think back to the Vietnam War, things that people were saying about LBJ, how they felt about that war and about his determination that he wasn't going to lose You read this book, and I think if you did pick up Lady Bird and Lyndon and think about that a little, it's exactly what you're saying about Remus. It's somebody who can just be mercurial, just change on a dime, switch between not that physical violence, as you said, in the case of LBJ, he's not beating anyone to death with a cane, but it's somebody who you look at and you say, riveting, a riveting person, no matter what, and Then you say Stalin, also a small guy, which makes me think a little bit of Remus, somebody maybe with something to prove. That's all things that in this book you'll get. I'm just giving people a little shot of it. You go to Heathrow Airport or something, you have a little taste of the little taste of the (laughs) bourbon. (laughs) That's what I think I'm I'm giving people here. If you you can read the book, check it out, see if you agree with Bob's comparison about LBJ and about Stalin. The guy is somebody that I'm not going to leave behind just when I close the cover of the book. I have 
the book right in front of me, which I'd like to do when I have it. And George Remus is watching me the whole time with that snide look, <laughs> right? And you're you're describing him as somebody you'd cross the street. You wouldn't want to be at a party with a guy or stuck in an elevator with him. That picture captures so much of his personality, doesn't it? I, I was wondering if you chose that picture to capture this really wide-ranging personality that you're talking about here. Yeah, the picture on the cover of the book really is the quintessential kind of angry Remus and that picture was snapped the first day of the trial by a photographer. And I have a 16-page photo spread in the book, which I'm really proud of because I worked hard. There's some documents that are reproduced in there, and there are some photographs that are have either never been published before or rarely been seen. And so I'm really happy that I was able to uncover these. And my friends at the Pogue Distillery in Maysville whose family had direct interactions with Remus, gave me access to some of these things. So you can see a letter from George Remus to their grandfather. It's signed by Remus. There's a reproduction of a Western Union telegram in there. This picture on the cover is the one that newspapers would then crop and use when they ran stories about Remus. But on the other hand, there are also pictures on the inside of Remus where he's smiling and happy and and very charismatic. He's not really what we would consider good looking by today's standard. But when he lit up the room with a big smile, he was definitely charismatic. He had piercing eyes. He had a big smile and he was powerful and, and people found him attractive in that sense. And so the photo spread also gives you an idea of those kind of impulses. So it's an interesting way to look at Remus and these multiple personalities that he carried within him that all served this larger aim of being a bigger than life character. And sometimes that meant money to him, and sometimes it meant power, and sometimes it meant associating with other evil kind of guys. Sometimes it was just mixing with high society. But all these facets really come together to make him who he is. I think some of your listeners are going to be like, how could he fit all this into one book? And I'll tell you, I originally imagined this book about maybe a little over half the size it is, because once I got into the stories, there's so much. When I tell people about the book, the first thing they say to me is, how do I not know the George Remus story? The second thing they say is, this has got to be a movie, because this life is, is fantastical. It really is an epic tale. It's something that it even fits between the two covers. I joke sometimes with the book. I say, I want to shake it and say, there's got to be more pages in here. This is such a huge story. It seems like it's all so fast, just like a movie. You go and watch a movie. It can be three hours long, but if it holds your interest, you don't notice that. And for me, I have to thank Diversion Books for sending me the hardcover, the finished copy, because the paperback I have in front of me right now is the advanced review copy. And so I didn't get the full impact of the photo spread. And that's great. I I used to feel guilty, honestly, when I was younger, that I wanted pictures in a book. I would say you're an adult now, you know, when I was whatever, 17, 16, something, you know, you shouldn't want a picture in your book. <laughs> but still, the first thing I do is go flipping through it and say, where's a picture? I want to see this guy. I want to, I want to see these people in action. I want to know somebody like Mabel Willebrand. And here's somebody who would be worthy of a book on her own. And as you said, people are probably listening and saying, 
wait, wait, there's another person in there? Well, there is. There's a fascinating woman named Mabel Willebrandt who, in an era when bootlegging and law enforcement are a man's game, she's part of this post-Great War wave of women demanding some equality, demanding to follow their dreams. They don't just want to be at home or school teachers or a librarian, the very limited opportunities that they had. And so here, she's one of the people who chases down the Bourbon King. This is an amazing thing to find in the book, to open it and say, well, here's another person. If it was a novel, I think they'd probably tell you, well, edit that character out because nobody's going to believe that one person has so many people around him that are just fascinating to spend a little time reading about. But she is one of those people. Yeah, Willebrandt plays a big role in the book. She is the assistant attorney general, and she's basically given her position because the Harding administration needs women in power because they want the vote from women in 1920. And so Willebrandt gets into this position and people think that she's not going to be able to handle it or that the bootleggers particularly are going to run her over essentially. But she really steps up to the task and goes after some big names. Now, Basically, everybody knows prohibition is a huge failure, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And Willa Brandt was really good at public relations and marketing her image, so she probably gets off a little more than she deserves when we look at her historically. But in her age, she was considered the most powerful woman in the 1920s. So she's a formidable character. And she sets a trap for Remus and gets him. And she gets him with the help of Franklin L. Dodge Jr., who is her quote-unquote ace detective. And Willebrandt and Dodge and the G-Men, they need a big win. They need a big public relations win. And Remus is that big fish that they get. And between you and me and all the listeners out there, I think the Taft family had a direct line to the upper echelons of the Prohibition Bureau, and they're the ones that put Willebrandt on Remus's tail. We can't prove that 100%, but I think we can infer from what does exist that that's the case. But yeah, again, Willebrandt probably deserves a book of her own. I include her in part of the book because she's essential to the story. She's also essential because... What I wanted to do in this book, it's Remus's story, but it's with a lot of context and contextualization so that a reader could say to themselves, I don't really know that much about the 1920s, or I only really remember what I saw on Boardwalk Empire or Ken Burns documentary. How can I go a little deeper? And The Bourbon King was written with the idea of giving somebody a full picture and an understanding of the 1920s that you could characterize or symbolize in Remus's rise and fall and rise again and fall again and however many times you want to go through that. You're so right about being able to drop people in with this book. If you had to pick a book about the 20s, I'd be happy to hand somebody the Bourbon King if they were interested in the Prohibition part of it. And you get those cameos. You get, oh, hey, the Tafts show up. Oh, hey, Willebrand. I think I heard of her at some point. And the 1920 election, that amazing year of six presidents that David Petrusha wrote about. 
that is a year where women vote for the first time. They exercise that universal suffrage and they vote, as does the nation, overwhelmingly for Warren G. Harding. He wins almost two to one in the popular vote. I think it's 60 to 35 percent. The guy really crushes his opponent. There's also some third party people that run, but still he's put in there. He gives the maybe one of the greatest presidential quotes of all time, which is, I am not fit for this office and should never have been here. Does <laughs> <laughs> Warren G. Harding and putting somebody there because he looks like a president, which they actually said about him, maybe is not the best way to pick a president based on the guy's looks. But there you go. I just went down a little rabbit hole about Warren G. Harding. He shows up in the Bourbon King here, and you've introduced us to him and given us that snippet. As I said, doesn't have to be the origin story right away. We don't have to know about him growing up or his newspaper days. But if people are interested, they can find an entire pile of books to read out of your book just from enjoying The Bourbon King. As far as Remus goes, he has so many corrupt officials in his pocket. He perhaps has an ex-president's family in his pocket and an ex-Supreme Court justice, all these people. And Remus boasts when he gets a hold of Harding Quote, I had my man in the Department of Justice right next door to the Attorney General's private office. That Remus that you've described so far in our conversation is already brash. He's really full of himself, super confident, a tough guy. He's not willing to take a slight. He's going to beat the heck out of you if you cross him. He has turrets for crying out loud there in Death Valley, right? Waiting to blow people away. He's reckless at times. You can't believe the audacity of it. You're a criminal mastermind, for crying out loud. Why are you living this audacious life in a town where you're going to be drawing the attention of an ex-president and all of these lawmen and embarrassing them? But no, he's out there with that cane, and he's flashy. He's giving away diamond stick pans, giving away cars. All of these things is George Remus throughout the course of the Bourbon King. Once he has Washington in his pocket... I, I shudder to think. So give listeners a little taste of that. Once he has his man right there next to the attorney general's private office, where is there left for Remus to go as far as expanding his empire and increasing his audacious behavior? I think you really nailed it on the head, Dean. Um, one of the things I'm really proud about with the Bourbon King is that I draw in the characters that were definitely part of the story and part of the 1920s. I mean, if you're an architecture fan, you're going to dig the way that I talk about buildings in this book, because there were buildings that are actually kind of co-stars in this story, like the Sinton Hotel that I talked about earlier, like the Alms Hotel that people will see in the book. The same with Harding. Harding makes more than a cameo. Harry M. Doherty, who is Harding's attorney general, is right there in the thick of things. And Doherty had a lifelong friend, almost a valet kind of character, named Jess Smith. And Jess Smith was the conduit between the bootleggers and the White House. And so when Remus made his payoffs, and some people say that in 1922 money, it was, say, maybe two hundred dollars to $300,000, which would be maybe a hundred times more than that today in, in terms of what that would equal in today's money. Remus really thought that he had Washington cornered. And after he gets caught, because you know, inevitably, once a fish becomes too big, 
somebody's going to go after it. And a combination of the Tafts and Willebrandt and the, the Prohibition Department, Remus got too big for what he was doing. And he started to get more out into the open. And when he started showing up high society and talking too much to reporters, he had to be brought down. And once the downfall came, it was pretty swift. But prior to that, he had Washington in his pocket. He had spent these hundreds of thousands of dollars to bribe. He had bribed on the local level. Another aspect of the Remus story is that he essentially created the bribery system in Newport, Kentucky. It went by various names, but Sin City was certainly one of the names that Newport went by. And Remus was kind of the king of of Newport. Newport later becomes a model for what the mafia can do in the United States. And they take that lesson and go out to a place called Las Vegas and perfect it. So without Remus, there's no Newport. Without Newport, there's no Vegas and the mafia strength there over many, many decades. So the power that Remus had was in his ability to bribe everybody from the Harding administration cabinet down to the beat cop on a horseback that used to patrol Death Valley for him and keep other cops away. So he used his money, he used it to make these connections. But in the end, he once said to a newspaper man, I thought like in under other industries, I could corner the market. But when it came to corruption, there's no way to corner the market. There's not enough money in the world. So that was what happened in the end. But he had built quite a reputation in D.C. I mean, he could get an audience with Jess Smith almost immediately. I like where he tries to get some of the bribe money back at one point, too. The Bourbon King really does have everything. It's going to sound like I, I can't possibly like a book this much, but I really did. And you say, I don't want to feel sorry for this guy because I know what he's been doing. But when he's running around to these other snakes that he's paid off and saying, hey, can I get some of that graft money I've given you back? Because I'm kind of a little short right now and I've had a lot of my stuff seized and my wife ran off with it and things. And he's he's trying to get it back. I thought that what a pathetic place for this guy who's the king of everything to end up begging for money back. And people tell him, no, there's no honor among thieves, I guess, in that sense. Yeah, the amazing thing that, you know, we've been talking about the Bourbon King in such detail and and it's such an amazing story, but we've we've almost not even touched on the major story, which is his relationship with Imogene, his second wife, who is really a character, and her family and the things that they do. We haven't really mentioned Franklin Dodge that much, who is the prohibition agent that steals her away and then the Imogene and Franklin loot the millions and spend basically two years running around the country, spending the money and running from Remus. So it's really an amazing, dense story that I try to tell in a really fun way. So there's still a lot in the book that your listeners are, are going to come across and they're going to go, well, he never really touched on that. But but there's still a lot there. And the Imogene story and the the way Remus went after Dodge and the press, and then the murder and the trial. These are major pieces of the story, and they really unfold in a fast-paced, interesting way. At the end, past studies have said that Remus was destitute and that he kind of lived out the remainder of his life, really, say, the next 25 years, 27 years, 
as a poor man. And through my research, I threw all that to the wind. None of that's true. He wasn't poor. He still had money. His third wife had laundered an untold amount of his money while he was in power because she had been his personal assistant and business manager. So while Remus was in jail in the Atlanta federal pen, which he called like being in hell, she was stuffing his money in places that the federal government could never find. So (laughs) Remus would never be able to get back to the heights of the bootleg king because that lifestyle grew vicious while he was in jail. And he was replaced. He was a man of the Gilded Age. If you were offensive to Remus, he'd punch you in the mouth. If you were offensive to Lucky Luciano, he would shoot you or have one of his men shoot you. And same with Capone and same with the hardcore gangsters. So what gangsterism meant in the 1920s changed during Remus's time, which I think is another interesting piece because a lot of Remus's cronies when he was in power end up on the wrong side of a, of a gun before the twenties are ended. Really is something that we can honestly say there's so much more to the book. I will often not want to go into a certain area because I say, well, I don't want to tell the whole book, but Remus's story, I feel like I want to add to it here. As we discuss it, I get to talk to the author. I get to ask you questions about it, about your writing process, about your research. So pick up the book and you'll feel the same way. You'll say, gosh, those guys didn't really scratch the surface, which is the idea. Bottom line is we want to tell you about a book that we're passionate about and hopefully you'll pick it up. In Bob's case, one that he worked very hard on and very hard to make readable and almost like a novel where it carries you along at that fast pace and you'll be reminding yourself, hey, this isn't HBO's Boardwalk Empire, which you mentioned a moment ago. This is the true story, which is more interesting, stranger often than fiction. So I do want people to for sure know that there's so much there. It's just great to be able to talk with the author about his observations or the observations of somebody like David Petrucia to ask, who do we compare this guy to? Since we both mentioned Boardwalk Empire, I did want to ask you about actor Glenn Flesher's portrayal of George Remus in the show. He has that very Stan Lee comic booky style of speaking about himself, refers to himself in the third person often, says Remus doesn't like this and that kind of thing. Now, I don't know where that comes from, so I wanted to ask you, having lived with Remus while writing The Bourbon King and presumably having seen Boardwalk Empire and the portrayal of Remus in that, how close did that come to portraying him in particular and bootlegging in general in the 20s? Remus definitely talked about himself in the third person, but it wasn't the comic book style that was portrayed on Boardwalk Empire. Now, I love Glenn Fleshler. He was amazing in True Detective. He was amazing as Remus in Boardwalk Empire, but they played him as too much of a comedic foil. He wasn't a buffoon. And that's how they portrayed him in Boardwalk Empire. It really was kind of disappointing in that respect. Glenn Fleshler is also, he's my size. He's, you know, 6'2", 6'3", well over 200 pounds. Remus, as we've talked about, he was a small guy. So the portrayal was interesting, but it wasn't really true to life because Remus held his own with all the criminal masterminds of the time. And in fact, he gave them a blueprint that they would later use for success. So he wasn't the joke that they portrayed him. 
The third person dialect and verbal style, I think, comes from Remus's status as a German-American or a German immigrant. He put on airs because he felt bad that he had a lack of formal education compared to other people. And by saying George Remus is America's greatest bootlegger or George Remus sells the finest alcohol or liquor, he is not only trying to purposely elevate his speech, but he's making himself the center of attention. And as readers read the book, they'll see that these were the tenets of his personality that he really felt he needed to portray. He was always very proud of the success that he had as a lawyer. And a couple times later in his life, he said that his biggest regret wasn't going to jail. It was being disbarred for violating the Volstead Act. Hmm. He really loved being a lawyer. And so that's one of the reasons he spent his later years trying to litigate his money back, because really he felt this is his one chance because this is the thing that he really loved. So the third person stuff, it happens not quite as cartoonish as in Boardwalk Empire. And certainly when there were certain times when Remus did this more. And so the court transcripts, he's saying, you know, Remus did this, Remus did that. It, often in speaking with reporters, he would do the same thing. But Remus was a mastermind at marketing and public relations. He knew that he was twirling these reporters around his little finger, and he gave them the portrait of himself that they wanted to write about. So I think it's just another piece of his brilliance in creating really a, a Remus brand for the 1920s. We have time for one final shot of hooch and I guess one last liquor-related joke there on my part. <laughs> Not really on my part. But before the G-Men raid our imaginary speakeasy, here we've spent all this time really excited and talking about George Remus and talking about the Bourbon King and how much is really in this book. We already know the names, Luciano, Capone, Rothstein, now Nucky Thompson, it seems impossible that we haven't met George Remus this intimately until you write The Bourbon King. So make your pitch for why readers should pick up The Bourbon King and go on a rum run with him, meet this Cincinnati-based bootlegger, and figure out what made him tick. What greater view will it give them of the 20s, whether they've never read a book on the period before or whether they're big fans of reading about it? Well, thanks, Dean. That's a great question to end on. And before the pro he's bang down the door, I'll give it one <laughs> last final effort. I would say that what surprised me the most about writing Remus's story and writing about the Bourbon King is that when it comes to the 1920s, people love the glitz and the glamour of the jazz age. They love the great Gatsby. I saw an invitation to a Gatsby theme party on Facebook the other day that some organization is setting up for January of 2020. And people have been going to Gatsby weddings ever since the last Leonardo DiCaprio movie came out. So people love the glitz and glamour, but they hate prohibition with a passion. But my contention would be that to really understand American history, you have to look at both of these aspects. What is it about the American people that makes us love the jazz age? What is it about us that we hate prohibition? And how can these impulses help guide us as 
critically thinking individuals now in the 21st century? How 100 years later can this book and this topic help us understand where we might be headed and how we might get there a little better? Because I would say for the last 100 years, America has still messed up its liquor policies. Many people would argue that debates about marijuana have been bungled for a hundred years. So we see presidential corruption at the highest level in 1920s. We see these accusations now. So there are ways that this book and this topic can not only be entertaining, but help us serve as some kind of maybe brief guide to help us put everything in context and build upon our knowledge to perhaps live more compassionate, thoughtful, energetic, fun-filled lives. So that would be my pitch. And I think this is a fun read. I can guarantee your readers, they're going, and our listeners, they're going to really enjoy the story. And they're, they may try to figure out this guy, George Remus, and I may help them a little bit, but there's still plenty of questions to ask and, and plenty of roads to go down if, if you like a book that leads you to thinking about bigger and broader questions. Well, Bob Batchelor, author of The Bourbon King, you said where we're headed as a nation can be informed here by your book. And I hope that people will be headed to the bookstore to pick it up, read it, and certainly George Remus will stay with you. You'll you'll find yourself trying to figure him out and thinking about him and think you know him on one page, turn to that next chapter that you always start off with such a punch and say, hey, this is a whole different side of this guy. I don't know what to expect from him next. Trust me, there's so much more here in The Bourbon King if you're listening and you want to go check it out. Thank you so much for introducing us to this man who kept a thirsty America's glasses full of hooch during Prohibition, even possibly all the way up to William Howard Taft. And we know that he could eat, he could drink too. <laughs> it's it's just such a pleasure always to catch up with you. I love getting a book and seeing that it's from Bob Batchelor. I know that I'm going to get a great read from you. I know I'm going to be entertained like no other book that I'm reading at that moment. It always moves right to the top of the pile, no matter what. So thanks again for introducing me to George Remus. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I hope that readers will certainly check out The Bourbon King. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, Dean. Again, the book is The Bourbon King, The Life and Crimes of George Remus, Prohibition's Evil Genius. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. By buying the book through us, you help keep our hip flasks full of booze that's sweet, smoky, and thanks to the repeal of that annoying 18th Amendment, 100% legal. I hope you'll join me in raising a glass to Bob Batchelor. I really appreciate that he returned to the passenger seat of our time machine to share this riveting tale of a very colorful figure in the already roaring Jazz Age 20s. It's hard to imagine an era in American history that had more colorful people, after all, than the 20s. If you enjoyed my conversation with Bob, please check out his previous book, Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel, and check out my interview with him about that book in our archives. Visit BobBatchelor.com 
or Twitter at Cult Pop Culture for more from today's guest. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Facebook.com slash History Author, or Instagram at The History Author Show. As you know, I like to post various pairings of books and booze, so the Bourbon King is a perfect fit. Well, I think I hear a drink calling my name. So that's it for this 100-proof installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And bottoms up. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.